Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern, You Drive Through the Dust by Dear Asudis, and the movie How to Train Your Dragon. Welcome to episode 15, my psychic, fire-breathing little pony. I'm Alex, and my animal companion is literally my cat, my actual real familiar. I'm Freya, and as you will see, my contribution to this discussion is going to be quite limited, but I had an imaginary falcon for a while when I was about (laughs) 10. (laughs) Oh, I'm Macy, and my animal companion, let's be honest here, would probably be a sentient tree. That's not technically an animal, Macy. <laughs> but it would. Remember remember our discussion about demons. If anybody was going to have a plant, it would be Macy. We are three red-headed fantasy authors. And today we're talking about horse books, but not just horses, all kinds of adoring telepathic animal companions. And actually, I'm lying. This episode is mostly about dragons. <laughs> but first, what are we reading, fellow serpents? When I was thinking about this, I was going to say I'm too stressed, I haven't been reading anything, and then I actually looked at my Goodreads and realized I have been stress binge reading, uh, mostly in the genre of magical teenage girls. So I reread uh, Hatful of Sky, which is the second Tiffany Aching book in the Discworld series. I read Newt's Emerald, which, by, which is by Garth Nix, and it is a very cute YA Regency romance with magic, uh, very much an homage to Georgette Heyer, really lovely. And The Lie Tree by Frances Harding. Is it, have you read this one yet, Macy? No, but you said that that's a Garth Nix that I don't recognise, and I'm shook. Yeah, no, not many people know about the Newt's Emerald, I think, because it's not Garth Nix's usual fantasy world. It's very much a Georgette Heyer YA with some magic sprinkled in. It's pretty charming. I love it. But, I will read. So you, you should read that. You should also read The Lie Tree, which is basically a peak Macy book. So Frances Harding is one of those people who I simultaneously want to devour the brain of and like throw myself at the feet of because her writing is so good. And if I wrote for kids, I would write like her. But this one is a really good creepy one about like the creepiness of adults as seen by children and a magical tree. So you should check that out. I I devoured her Changeling book when I was in edits for Hagstone and it definitely influenced the Dryad character. So I strongly agree and second the recommendation for any and all Francis Harding books. Uh, I have been in edit hell once again. Uh, My edit hell ends in Day After Tomorrow, which is excellent. I'm very much looking forward to being free. I have taken on a lot of projects and the next two days are just weird. Uh, So because I'm in edit hell, I've been reading more uh, Dragon Age Inquisition (laughs) fanfic. Uh, But this time I'm doing all of the T and G rated fics instead of the porn. So that's how you know that I'm getting, that my relationship with this fandom is really getting serious, you know? Like, I've, I'm about to take it home and introduce it to my parents. Like, that's, that's where we're getting to. It's not just a sex thing anymore. Right, exactly. Uh, I also read a little bit of Suits fanfic on the recommendation of one of our scribes, Magali, and as it turns out, the fic that Magali wrecked me was basically the only good fic in Suits fandom. The rest of them are kind of aggressively mediocre and they're doing the same thing over and over and over again. I mean, a lot of fic does the same thing over and over and over again, but Suits fandom seems to do it more than usual. So I'm already bored with that. In Venice, the show basically does that. That's very true as well. I've started watching the show and oh like the sh- I'm only like eight episodes in, so I haven't quite gotten that as much, but... I don't think that it's going to be something that holds my interest for a long time. I think I watched a bit less than the first season. It's not, yeah. Yeah, it's not like it's fine. But, it's fine. Yeah, my, my general verdict on Suits is at least it's not supernatural. Yes, yes. And I think that I have read Rag and Bone by KJ Charles since the last time that we did an episode, but my brain is dead, so I have no idea. That is fair. I had to, I, I had to look it up on, my, on the history page on my overdrive account so oh. that's where my head's at right now well but let's talk about something more fun yes like my books 
I didn't get to talk about mine yet. Oh, that's why did I go then? Because it's the order that we put it I in the list. Know. It's not supposed to be that order. <laughs> Fuck. Well, okay. I was like, <laughs> I was like, wow. I zoned out so hard. I didn't hear a word of what Macy told us about. <laughs> Well, I think I'm going to blame Macy for putting her own dot point in the wrong place. Listen, friend. Macy, you're supposed to... I don't think it matters. It it, well, no, it doesn't. Oh, other than, like, have it. It's it, fine. It's fine. Fine. We got You're this. disastrous. <laughs> Macy, please tell us what you've been reading lately. So, uh, dear listeners, as we are quietly establishing amongst ourselves, all of the serpents are trash fires this week. So, um... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very well, welcome. Well, <laughs> not a good show. May I say, welcome to the madness. Um, that because everyone needs a little Yuri on Ice in their life. No. Okay. What I have read in the past two, 12, 20 days words um, are some books. Wow. Listen, friend. Amazing. Please. Listen, friend. I have been on both sides of the Atlantic during this time period. Um, Listen, listen, we're going to get through this together with the power of friendship. Macy, tell us what books you read. I read some books. Um, I finished Witchmark by C.L. Polk, which is an Edwardianish gay bicycle riding book full of mage hijinks. It's adorable. I can't wait to read that. I'm not allowed to read it yet. My agent offered to send it to me. And then she was like, actually, you should finish your work in progress first because I'm I'm reading (laughs) I am writing an Edwardian magic book at the moment, and I am desperate not to have bleed over from someone else's world building until I'm at least done with the first draft. But it looks so good. It's it's really good. It's really good. I love them. There's like medical stuff, like uh, trying to heal people coming home from a devastating war. It's very Edwardian. I love it. And it's very gay, which I also love. I have also finished um, On the Plane, The Calculating Stars by Mary Robinette Coal which is kind of a bit like the movie Hidden Figures, but it's post-apocalyptic about a Jewish physicist who is fighting the sexist dude establishment to try to become an astronaut and save the species. Ooh, I like her. Very She's good. good. And also because I am a nerd, I just finished 1177 BC, the year civilization collapsed, which is a history textbook about the collapse of the Bronze Age society in Eastern, uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, um, about 3,000 years ago. So it's all sorts of archaeological details and like letters about divorces. Hmm. Huh. So you're in a very post-war book kind of phase at the moment, it seems. It was, no, it was, I mean, the thing about that was that it wasn't really a war that collapsed that civilization at all. Um, and it's hard for us to prove what really did. But what's fascinating is how similar to things that we think about today a lot of the aspects were like political interplay and trade embargoes and, you know, botched weddings. Excellent. Like Eanazir, the the fraudulent bronze merchant was not an outlier. Wonderful. Wonderful. So let's move on. (laughs) Let's move on to the episode. And I think the first thing that we have to do as is classic grand tradition is that Macy is going to explain to me what a horse book is. Oh gosh. Um, I think that I had a theory a while back, which was um, kind of, you know, 2 a.m. shower thoughts type theory, which is mm. my statement for this episode is are horse books romance novels for kids? Yes. Great. We can go home. Great <laughs> episode, everybody. Bye. Have a great night. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Well, I think if you're taking that as the thesis, then it helps us to define animal companion books, horse books, versus books that are about horses. So things like Black Beauty is not a horse book because it's got a horse as a protagonist, but it's not about a human forming a relationship with. Right. I'll break down a little bit why what made me what made me say that and think that, which is we were talking about romance novels and romantic relationships um, in people's lives as a thing that you look for to fill a certain hole and need and loneliness a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and one of the biggest drivers for me has always been wanting to have someone whose favorite you are, you know, whose top priority you are. And I think that when you're middle grade aged, an animal, a pet frequently is that person. I mean, your parent is also, but like there isn't quite the same reciprocity there. It's not a peer relationship, but your pet is the one that you love and adore who loves and adores you. And so the horse book genre, when I was a kid was all of these reams upon reams of easy reader 
young girl finds an injured pony in a field and nurses it back to help back to health and her parents cannot afford this pony and so she is forced to give it up but then she sneaks out and works nights digging in the farmer's fields to earn a place for her pony in the stable and they get to be together anyway we should say that in the uk this genre is called pony books (laughs) is this not a genre that you guys have encountered Oh, I have read, it feels like exactly the book that you are talking about, except I know that I've read that book on three separate occasions and it was three different books every time. Um, Weirdly, I never read that book, but I tried to kind of write it, I think, because I had it in my head. Look, I found this notebook uh, a year ago from when I was less than 10, probably, where I had got it into my head that the kind of book that girls my age should want to write would be a book about horses. And so I wrote a book about a girl in Victorian <laughs> England going to London and looking for her horse that had been accidentally sold. I got like three chapters into it and then I think I realized that I was not a horse person. <laughs> like, what the fuck am I doing? And put it away. That is but fascinating. You can, there's just... That is fascinating. And can I briefly derail the episode to tell you about the book that I wrote when I was less than 10 years old? Oh, God. Because I think yes. it's very telling about like who I am as oh, a person. No. The book oh, that no. I wrote was about a princess and her favorite handmaiden. And for most of what I wrote, the princess was one, answering fan mail, and two, discussing with the handmaiden what she was going to do about the economic disaster that was about to uh, beset the kingdom. And number three, going to a dress fitting. That was the whole book. So clearly the princess needed to invent crowdfunding and monetize her fan base to solve the economic crisis. That's True. clearly where True. that would have ended I up. Mean, I mean, I feel like I'm the always the outlier in these conversations because I didn't write fiction until, like, I was 18. Right, you were too busy binging the entirety of fanfiction.net. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think 18 was the age at which all the words that Macy had crammed into her head finally started <laughs> leaking explosively out Onto a page. You are not wrong. <laughs> However, at the age of before 10, so at the age of like 9, 10, 11, the thing I was binging was not ff.net, as I had not discovered it yet. It was Anne McCaffrey novels. Oh, great job mm. bringing this back on topic. I'm really proud of you. <laughs> Let's just all take a moment to appreciate Macy well for like <laughs> bringing good. us back to it. Good. Well, I wanted to say, I think... What you were saying about the idea of a an animal companion being the one who loves you the best, I think it is very much a natural growth from my pet loves me, I love my pet, they love me unconditionally, to what if my pet could talk to me? Mm-hmm. So as what, instead of as well just being it loves me because I feed it, it is it loves me and we have a relationship closer to that of equals. They are closer to a friend, we can have conversations, they appreciate me for my mind <laughs> oh and not my just God. the food that I give them. <laughs> Well, this is essentially, it's that middle step. It's that step from animal companion as, you know, beloved pet to animal companion as sophisticated friendship Mm -hmm. before you get to the step of romance novels for adults. Uh Uh-huh. Do you remember, I don't know who it was, I have this vague memory of, like, a kid's book where children rescue a baby Nessie, or maybe it was a Selkie, and keep it in their bathtub and have to hide it because it's this magical monster. No, it sounds a little bit like Five Children and It, but that's I loved that was Five different. Children and It. I know. That was such a charming book. It was. But that was very much like a magical creature of wisdom that talks to you thing rather than we've rescued a Nessie and we have to keep it in the bath, which does sound quite charming. That is charming. It sounds a little bit like the sort of book that might have come later in uh, another series that I fucking loved when I was a child, which was the first one was Jeremy Thatcher, Dragon Hatcher which is another horse book um, about a dragon. Some horses breathe fire, Alex. That's fine if that's their identity. Okay, sure. Sure. (laughs) Sure, why not? (laughs) Um, Because the whole series was about these kids who get, well, not custody, but they're responsible for these magical creatures for a short time, and then like a halfway house or something i don't know it's been a long time but all of them were sentient and could talk and so they were like responsible for caring for these magical creatures and then 
the magical creatures would be well enough to leave again and be free, except, I don't know, like, I, it's been well, like Well, if any years. of our dear listeners know what Alex is talking about, I'm please ta- send her a message. I'm talking about, okay. Something, something, Dragon Hatcher. Jeremy Thatcher, Jeremy Dragon, Thatcher Hatcher. Dragon Hatcher was the first there we one, go. yeah. And in the UK, there was, so pretty much everyone's familiar with the Goosebumps books and how those worked, and like the Animorph yep. books and yep. how those worked. It's a bit more like the Ghostbumps ones, actually, because these weren't connected. But there were very, there was also like a rescuing wild animals and healing them up and then setting them free again series of books that, like the Goosebumps, were totally unconnected and probably all ghost written and churned out on a factory line. But they were all the same shape of you find an animal, you rescue it, you heal it, and you come to appreciate it, and it loves you too, and then you set it free. Right. So it's very much a sort of coming of age emotional maturity thing, not not a this is you know forever companion thing, but uh, you learn to love it and you have reached emotional maturity when you can let it go again. Ooh. I think that makes sense. I think I mean that's often what those those books are about, essentially. And that's because what they're trying to tell children. You can't really love something by holding on to it really tightly. Like in the real world, like you have to love something by being able to let it go free and be its own person and do its own thing and if it comes back to you then that's great like your imaginary falcon yeah yeah Freya. my imaginary falcon was a way of livening up very boring car rides <laughs> was would it like fly next to the car yeah and then it would like go off and explore uh, the fields and the mountains and it would come back again oh but literally that was as close as i got i was not a horse book child i was not an animal companion child i was a performing arts child and i read all of the like ballet school <gasps> noel stretfield circus that was my particular genre of binge reading as a child that is fair so basically instead of wanting someone to love me i just wanted to be famous <laughs> i mean mood for real yeah. speaking as the only person in the room currently who has an actual animal companion it's great i highly recommend it it's wonderful except when your friends come over to visit you <laughs> and your animal companion decides to hate them for no reason i yes and that was that was entertaining your cat i'm sure is a very nice i was about to say human being no but <laughs> no, she's a wretched creature. She's a wretched creature and she loves only me, which is extremely gratifying, but occasionally embarrassing. Wouldn't it be worse though, Macy, if she were, if the cat actually was some kind of like part of Alex's personality yes. that had just yes. been outsourced into cat? Well, it would be really weird because worse. I was allowed to pet the cat as long as Alex was present. True. But the second that Alex went to bed and I attempted to go to the bathroom for a cup of water, the screaming and yowling started and the thumping and the claws. And this resulted in me standing in the dark in the middle of the kitchen, sort of tremulously calling into the air. Alex! Alex, come Your cat has cornered me in the kitchen and might be about to kill me for real. (laughs) And I came downstairs, like I trolloped down the stairs and like snatched the cat up in my arms. And I said, sweet love, what are you doing? And then rubbed my face in her tummy. I said, come with me. We'll come sleep in my room. Rubbed my face on her tummy. You're terrible. (laughs) Rewarding its bad behavior. I can't punish her. It wouldn't have any effect. <laughs> she wouldn't cat. understand it. She's not actually sentient. I'm trying to think about like fantasy horse books where the animal is like totally not under their control. And I think we'll talk about one of the tent poles where that's the case later. So I, I can bridge uh-huh. from what we just talked about to that by bringing up real quick before we get into the the tropes and the things that do fit the pattern. I wanted to touch briefly on a book which does not fit the pattern, technically a horse book, and the horse is a magic cat called Mogget, <gasps> just like my magic cat, which is also called Mogget. I love these books. Yep, the uh, Abhorzen books by Garth Nix have this necromancer who uh, called Sabriel, who has kind of an animal companion, kind of this spirit attendant trapped in the body of a cat. I would argue that the cat has her. Well, most cats do. (laughs) And it doesn't fit the pattern because they, the cat slash spirit creature at no point is, like they have a relationship, but it's made very clear that 
if the cat ever got freed from its cat-shaped body, or rather, if the spirit ever got free from its cat-shaped body, it would immediately murder her. <laughs> to be fair, that is the impression I get from many cats. Also the true. Also Alex's cat. <laughs> Something about also the Alex's cat. You. Which is also called Mogget. My my cat Mogget is named after this cat Mogget, and both of them would murder you if they got the chance. <laughs> well, what did you expect with a name like that? That's so bad. Let's. I I considered a lot of names that I realized were going to be bad choices, and I went with that one, which was honestly the least bad of oh, the choices gosh. that I had. So fair, let's fair. move on to the first tent pole. No, 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 no. We can't yet because I want your opinion contrasting the despicable dog. Okay. Because there are two animal companions, so for, for our listeners, there are two animal companions in the Abhorsen trilogy by Garth Nix, and one of them is a dog, and one of them is a cat, and they are quite different to one another. And it's made quite clear, I want to say in the books, that they are unique creatures, they are not part of any sort of pattern or trend. Right. I think, I think the Despicable Dog oh. gets... Is it? No, it's not Despicable Dog. It's disreputable, disreputable dog. dog. That's the one. There we uh, go. I think the disreputable dog is more animal companionsy than Mogget is. Mm. That's fair. Yeah, because I mean, for one thing, she's a dog, and she's just more inclined to cooperation and sort of being on the same side as people. Is what dogs are about. Yeah, and you're thinking about. I, I, animal companions, cats versus dogs. And what about the young wizards? Because the young wizards has a companion dog who becomes a magical animal, essentially becomes a god. Hmm. But because it is still essentially a dog, there's still that like fondness and loyalty and sense of fun rather than once I have escaped my mortal realm, I will kill everyone. Macy, why are you covering your face? Because I just connected that to the um, radiation universe-ending dog in Homestuck. Oh, God. We're not talking about Homestuck. <laughs> we're not talking about Homestuck. We're not. We're not. Please, please direct me away because I don't remember. I'm going to tell you about animal. our first oh, no, title oh, no, for this. No, because I did have one other point. Oh, about my God. <laughs> I'm, listen, friend. Listen, I have points. That's what I yep. do. I'm very pointy. All right. Um... <laughs> No, um, I think that one of the things that Garth Nix does with his animal companions that feels further away from some of the tropes and styles of animal companions is they are characters with character arcs. Mm. And I don't think that's something we see very commonly. I think two of our tent poles, I would argue, actually do have this. But a lot of the classical fantasy dragon books, fantasy animal books, the animal companion does not get to be a person even though we're meant to believe that they are sentient, but they don't get to have motivations or wants or wishes or desires. Yes, they they don't have mm. very much dynamic character growth to them. Exactly. And now we should talk about some of the things that we like in our tent poles. Oh, are you do. sure? Are you sure we can talk about a tent pole now? <laughs> oh, I can find other ways to dislodge and disreputable. This episode is a disaster. This episode is a fucking mess. Let's move on to the tent pole, I shall can derail, we? I can derail this as far as I as far as you want me to, Alex. We can rename it. We can rename it My Little Trash Fire Pony. Yes! <laughs> So our first tent poll for this week, dear listeners, <laughs> is How to Train Your Dragon, which is a Yay. wonderful movie set in fantasy Viking land about Fantasy a, Viking Scotland. It's fantasy Viking Scotland about... Because they all got Scottish accents. Yes. And it's about a young man whose village is regularly attacked by dragons of all sorts, and... He makes friends with the most wonderful and badass of all of the dragons, naturally, because protagonist yeah, syndrome. That's how protagonists yes. do. And that's how they protagonize. Yes, and there's this wonderful montage uh, towards the end of Act One in this film yes. where you get to watch him and this dragon building a relationship together very tentatively and watching the sort of progress that they make even with things like physical touch between them and i can't call it taming because that seems like shitty and weird but it is very much sort of like understanding each other and learning to speak each other's language 
And the music for that scene is called Forbidden Friendship. Mm. And it is one of the most emotionally manipulative pieces of music for me, who is very easily manipulated by soundtrack music. Is a beautiful, beautiful piece of music from the score. And the first time I saw it in the theatre, I was just sitting there with shivers everywhere. And if you think about how that movie is structured, it is actually structured like a romance novel. Because mm-hmm. you're right, it is, mid, it is midpoint. It is act one, is the getting to know one another and culminating in the middle. In If this was an adult novel, would probably be a sex scene, but because it is a children's movie about a dragon, is a scene in which they go joyously flying together. Freya, friend, friend, <laughs> the, the, the fact that this is a dragon is of more concern to me than the age range and target of the movie. I disagree. This is not, this is not, Freya, this is not Avatar. No, nobody is, nobody is going to fuck their steed with their ponytail. It's fine. But I'm talking about if we're classing horse books as romances for children, the structure of How to Train Your Dragon is absolutely the same as a, as a romance novel. Beat to beat. Yes. Sidebar on Avatar, though. Must we? The, shit, the, the blue one. <laughs> the, the fucking your steed through your ponytail one. Yes, exactly. That one. Right. It was. Yes. It is established, Alex, because you are giving me a sceptical look right now later on that they have sex through their weird, their, their hair things. And how do they connect with their steed? Oh, wait. Through the hair things. Oh, I see. Yeah. That's very strange. There are many, many, many problems with Avatar. That is just one of them. But the midpoint climax is literally a fucking your horse scene. Yeah. I'm sorry, Alex. I'm sorry. Anyway, to back to yeah. How to Train Your Dragon, which is a beautiful, wholesome movie, <laughs> not in any way about fucking dragons. Speaking of beautiful, wholesome movies, I feel like this whole episode was supposed to be beautiful and wholesome. We were talking about... No, no. This really went off no, the rails. Alex, it's full of McCaffrey. It's full of McCaffrey. It was never going to be you know wholesome. What? Good point. This tentpole was the only wholesome one, so let's enjoy it while we can. So we were going to talk about soul bonding tropes, Alex. Yes, soul bonding tropes. They're great. But this one doesn't actually have soul bonding. This is one of the things I like about How to Train Your Dragon, is that it's about choice. So, you know, Hiccup makes friends with Toothless, the dragon, because he feels bad about the fact that Toothless was hurt and he helps him to fly again and they do, they make friends slowly but there's never any suggestion that they are bonding on a soul level or some kind of magical level, they are just making friends because they're both choosing to be there for the other and that that does make it distinct from some of the other temples we're going to talk about which have more of that, this animal has chosen you and now your souls are locked together forever. Right, and I think that it's like we were saying with Mogget is that less so because Toothless, I don't think we claim is sapient, but is clearly very intelligent, um, has, I would say, a character growth or certainly has motivations. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a whole arc in the movie about why the dragons have been attacking village um, and Toothless very clearly chooses to show this to Hiccup because the name of the protagonist is Hiccup Horrendous Haddock the Third. <laughs> Because I love this movie so much. It's a great movie. And actually in the sequel, you do see a kind of soul bonding take place, but in a bad context. Like you see Toothless come under the control of uh, somebody else, one of the villains. I can't remember the exact circumstances, but that's shown as that sort of soul bonding takes him away from Hiccup and, and sort of ruins that loyalty that he had just from the way that they've always treated each other and been there for each other. In in a way, I want to say that the choice, the act of choosing and the fact that you have to choose makes it almost a stronger bond to me than one of the fated ones. I think that the, the draw of many of the fated soul bonded chosen ones is you can never stop loving me. Yeah. yeah. Which on one hand is really attractive. Yes. We want it in our gut, in our heart, and then we think about it and we're like, ooh. Yeah. But there's something a little bit healthier and more sophisticated about showing a friendship whereas if you mistreat that person they can end it and if you mistreat your dragon they can walk away from you right like like Uh, you said macy it's something that you sort of want instinctively but once you start thinking about it you realize that it's actually like much nicer and makes you feel better to know that someone is choosing you day after day after day rather than being with you because they have to and they don't have any other choice Which is why I think that um, <clears throat> the soul bonding fanfic tropes, the uh, my soulmate's name is written on my arm, all of those get so much play mm. 
people really do want to explore that a ton, but also they're kind of, it, 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 it's tough, right? I like the, the interpretations of those where either the soulmate thing isn't necessarily a biological imperative, where mm-hmm. like your soulmate might just be someone who's a really, really good friend to you. And it's just like right. a mark to say like, hey, you should be in each other's lives. Or where you get a choice, some other kind of choice about whether or not to right. be with this person. Yeah. For me, those tropes only ever work in fan fiction because you're going into the story essentially already believing that those yeah. two yes, people belong together. Fair. Most of the emotional heavy lifting has been done. All you're looking at now is an interesting situation that those people are in. I don't think I've ever come across an original story. I don't know if I'd be interested in an original story that uses those things like the soulmate's name written on that arm or the whatever they say to you first or things like that because it would just yeah I think I'd have trouble moving past the more dodgy aspects of that trope without going in with a fanfic mindset I think you're right I think I totally agree and I would feel similarly but I think that you're right about um wanting to have those subversions of soul bonding tropes in fan fiction and the ones where sometimes uh it's someone who's going to be important to you but not necessarily your romantic soulmate And I think that one of the things that we were saying earlier in preparation for this was you learn a lot about who someone is by how they're reflected in the people around us. Yes. And by who they click with. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, there's always a sense that the animal companion is proving your worthiness or a character's worthiness somehow. Yeah, and I mean, you also have the, the animal companion who is the person who is so close to you and knows you better than anyone else does and is able to kind of give you an outside perspective on yourself. Because I know Mm -hmm. that I have a hard time sometimes describing my personality. I think that a lot of my behaviors are quote-unquote normal until I see them from the outside of me. And I realize like, oh, that's not actually part of the normal. Either that was like an exceptionally good thing or sometimes an exceptionally bad thing. And... It's it's like I need other people around me to sort of be mirrors so that I can see who I am by my interactions with them, if that makes sense. So then does an animal companion have to be complementary to your personality? Like some, something about it has to be a form of yourself? Well, th- that was done in, with the, the demons in Philip Pullman's His mm-hmm. Dark Materials, where the animal companion... I Can we really consider those animal companions with the taxonomy that we're using? I, I think so. I mean, I don't think we have much of a taxonomy at the yeah. moment. I think that they are in that they are uh, a separate being that does have its own thoughts. Yeah, but it's still a part mm-hmm. of you. That is very much linked to you and loves mm-hmm. you most. Right, right. And knows things about you that nobody else knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And But those ones, again, have that sense that they can't walk away. So your demon can't leave you because your demon is part of you. And then that leads on to that the form of this particular trope where you do have a soul bond, you do have a psychic bond with the magical animal uh, that is set in stone at the very beginning of your relationship, and that's it. You're friends for life or partners for yeah. life or whatever. Yeah, and this exactly. brings us nicely to our real second quick, Real quick, real quick, I have Macy. one more point about uh, His Dark Materials, which is that there are animal companions in those books with the demons, and it's the witches. Because yes. that's when they get really animal companionsy. Because the witches have to go through that that separating process, and their that's demon separation. can like go far away from them and then come back. And it's still not a case where you can ever be permanently separated from your demon, but it functions much more in it functions much more like the trope than the anyone else's demons do. I think. I I'm not sure. I think that for me, um, the the fantasy horse books range a really wide um, spectrum of things and it's more about having having a companion who is yours personally than almost anything yeah. else like having that one-to-one relationship with an with something non-human i would almost say there are probably sci-fi alien examples of this where you have companions i don't read enough sci-fi though yeah. to, to talk I to that i can't think of any off the top of my head McCaffrey kind of does this a little bit with the way that she partners her super problematic brain ships with their brawns. Okay. Which was a really, yeah, don't don't read those books. But she basically has disabled people or people with chronic illnesses implanted into mm-hmm. ships to be sentient spaceships, and they have a human animal companion. Oh, that's interesting. 
Farscape does that with hmm. the sentient ship as well oh, and yeah. the particular types of animals that are animals, aliens that are bred as pilots because they have the ability to interface with these living ships and they're both they're sort of meshed together when they're both really young and they grow up together and I think it's one of I can't remember which season of Farscape in but it has that a plot point where they have to unmesh the pilot and is it Moya? Moya the living yeah. ship <laughs> and they find out more about how that relationship starts and it's kind of creepy but also kind of sweet yeah and I think for me there's kind of two pieces to that duality companionship thing here and one of those Alex is exactly what you were saying is having an external an external point of view on yourself to kind of bounce things back and this is something I see when I'm doing my emotional intelligence 101 training thing at work that I run where we do talk a lot about coaching one another you can't as a human being modulate yourself very well just like you can't hear what your voice actually sounds right. like you can't really see or feel what your behavior feels like to others. And having someone that you trust enough to give you that feedback is super intimidating for a lot of us. But if you had a demon, if you had a little mouse riding on your shoulder, if you had a little stick insect in your pocket to tell you about that after the fact, that would be kind of comforting and like a stopgap um, as an adult. Sorry, I'm just thinking about the... Is it, is it from How I Met Your Mother, the, the guy who stands beside your shoulder and sings Mistake really loudly when you make a mistake? <laughs> what? <laughs> I can't remember which TV show that's from, but it's this idea, or maybe it's, it's either that or Scrubs. It's one of those ones with like, you know, very creative inner lives with this idea of having someone who stands behind your shoulder and when you make a mistake, his job is to sing very loudly and operatically, Mistake! Thanks, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. That's what an animal companion is. <laughs> but not really. But, 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 okay, let's... Then the other piece of that puzzle, as well as having someone to critique you, is the lure and promise of a soul-bonded animal companion who will always love you. And you can never be such a shit human being that they will throw you out. You, they cannot break up with you, which is creepy. But like they can't, they won't leave you ever. They will never stop loving you, and there's nothing you can do to make them stop loving you, which is hugely addictive, I think, to a lot of us. Yeah. Who all everyone experiences loneliness at some point in their lives, and so it's a very tempting emotional food. Like we've talked about with books in the past, uh, about what are you going in, what type of meal are you looking for in this book. I think that particular flavor is attractive to a lot of people. Yeah, I would agree. And that brings us to my misspent youth, Macy's misspent youth corner. Oh, good. Is that your corner now? <laughs> <laughs> it seems like the vast majority of your youth was misspent. Is there any of your life, is there a small corner that was the well-spent Macy youth, or is it just all misspent? I, I can play from memory all major, minor, in harmonic and melodic um, scales on the piano for with two hands for three octaves. That's cool. That was a large chunk of my youth and was probably spent, if not misspent. It was certainly spent. I think very few people could argue that that was like a misspent aspect of my youth. So tell I us. I mean, wasted perhaps. Anyway, yes, McCaffrey. <laughs> tell us about the dragons. Tell this us episode's about, gonna so, be a fucking mess to edit. <laughs> It's fine, we love you and trust you that you will fix it anyway. And if all else fails, you can just be like, would you like to see this serpents unfiltered and then just throw the whole fucking drone <laughs> unedited? Anyway, let's talk about dragons. Okay. So, correct me. Is McCaffrey the original dragon as companion author? Because it's 80s, we're talking 80s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am not sure. I am we can right. ask our listeners, I guess. I wish you had asked me this before so that I could prepare. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't matter hugely. I can't, I think, I can't think of any earlier ones. I'm thinking like dragons in early fantasy is very much dragons antagonists. Yes, yeah. I will put her then as like one of the formative voices in this trope. You thing. get... Hold on, I'm thinking. Yeah, the, the dragons in Wizard of Earthsea were sort of antagonist-y. When was that published compared to the Dragon Riders? Uh, the first one was... Wizard of Earthsea was published in 1968. 
Yeah, so that predated it. Yeah. Uh, but then McCaffrey comes out with, I believe it was the first book was the lesser book, Dragonflight. And it's a book in which a an abused uh, young woman of very poor means in a medieval feudalistic society gets plucked from her life of obscurity and revenge and placed on the sands of the dragon, the dragon sands to try to court an egg. And she succeeds in psychically soul bonding with the baby queen dragon, the only queen dragon against all the dozen other girls who are trying that year. And thus she is now the queen and she is important and valued and this dragon loves her. And then everything gets really weird because McCaffrey had some opinions about sex, but um, the the core of the Dragon Riders of Pern is this bond between the dragon and the rider. And it's such a key bond that if your dragon dies and you stay alive, most of the time you will find a way to fade away as well. And it was something that I read a ton of as in my childhood. There were like dozens of these books. There's what, like 20, 25 of these books? Yeah, lots. There's a lot of these books. And there are women in these books. Not many, because only one of the colors of dragons will allow women until the later books. But there are women, which was nice. And even gay people, but you were intrinsically defined by the color of your dragon. And so there was some very weird stuff around. Uh, the dragon outing you and thus fixing your sexuality forever. Mm. There was some weird stuff. I don't think I ever read those books. I think I, I definitely read the lesser mm-hmm. book. And I read a couple of the Harper ones because mm-hmm. I was very into the like intersection between music and magic and things like that that were, I assume, Alex, you were also into the like traveling storyteller. I I definitely I definitely remember those most vividly out of all of the McCaffrey books I read and I read a good few of them. Mm-hmm. I remember vaguely the Lessa book because I think that was the first one that I read. I remember vaguely reading was it called The White Dragon? Yes. All I remember about that one was the cover and that there was like some sex scene I think in a bush and I was very embarrassed <laughs> because I was about 11 at the time. And but yeah, the the Harper books are the ones that I actually like remember events and things that happened in them. I definitely remember reading Dragonflight at a time when I was too young to recognize how problematic it was that if you were the one bonded to the dragon and somebody else's dragon caught your dragon, then the two of you had sex. That's it. You guys are mated now. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah well done. You're married. Yeah. Yeah. That was always weird. And also the whole, um, I think we were talking a bit earlier about some systems of fantasy horse books have it so that the type of fantasy horse that you have implies something about your status or personality in society Mm -hmm. and McCaffrey goes real hard on that like real hard if you bond with the queen gold dragon you are the ruler of the weir but only in like lady ruler ways and and I can see it's coming from this place of the dragon has chosen you because they know you entirely. Yes. And that and the extrapolation of that is they know what is best for you or they know who the person that will, you know, be suited to you is. So it's got that kind of that aspect of this human person is kind of your soulmate because your magical soul dragons have chosen one another and they would only do that if you were suited, possibly. Yes. But it's still very dodgy. It's very dodgy, but also like the dodginess is like the when you impress a dragon you define the whole of the rest of your life there is not really free will if you impress a bronze you have a chance to be a leader if you impress a brown you're going to be solid and dependable if you impress a green you're going to be flighty and homosexual (laughs) Uh, which i mean mood but uh, (laughs) listen okay huge mood Mood. I'm just thinking about like one of those tag yourself It's <laughs> just like uh, Bren, flighty and homosexual and everyone's like, yeah, me, mood, tag. Only, only if you're a boy though. If you are a girl yeah. and wish to be gay, you have to impress a blue so you can be butch. Okay. Very nice. Blues are butch and insignificant. That's basically the traits. Anyway, McCaffrey gender essentialism aside, another interesting point about Dragon Riders though, and you reminded me of this when you mentioned the Harper books, is that there's kind of two types of animal companions in Pern. Yes. Because there's the fire lizards. The fire lizards are adorable and I would much prefer, and 
for my whole life since I have ever read McCaffrey, I have always gone like, Fire Lizard seems like a better deal than dragons. They're so beautiful and like they're described as being jeweled and they're also kind of psychically in touch with you, but their intelligence level is about that of a slightly thick cat. Yeah, it's, it's cute. It's cute. <laughs> and they say like, but they still mm-hmm. make you want to have sex with the person who catches them or something. Do but they? like not not like you have to. This wasn't a thing in the Dragon Singer <laughs> books because those were YA, but oh. it becomes a thing with other people who have fire lizards later on. So like mild sex pollen? Yeah, it, basically really? sex pollen. That's basically about the really? level of it. Okay. There's nothing yeah. wrong with a good sex pollen every now and then. <laughs> as long as it's recreational and consensual. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so remind me, Macy, because I haven't read many of the books. So the whole point of these dragons is that the dragon riders are responsible for protecting the human settlements against the string whatever it is thread. like this like thread thread i don't know the stuff the like dangerous stuff that falls from the sky and their job is to burn it so that it can't hurt people when yes. it's falling so is there a period in this dragon society where there is no threat yes. and if so what do the dragons do because it seems to me a lot of these more sort of large animal or even smaller ones as we'll get to in the next tent pole these animal companion books are set in a not necessarily military but certainly where the, where the animals are in some form used for self-defense. Because if you think of the Temeraire books, which are also you imprint on a dragon, it's about war. It's about the Napoleonic Wars. And this is about the dragons as a defense force, essentially. Yes. So this is actually something I do remember. So the very chronological in, in universe, in chronological order, first one was like these people from Earth have their spaceship and they land on this new planet where there are fire lizards and then the thread stuff starts happening and the thread are these like worms that fall from the moon no and... they fall from the oort cloud okay sure Asteroids. i thought it was like acid rain but not acid rain but like biological right and so like if it falls Ooh, okay. on anything organic it eats it and it's terrible and gross and so the scientists genetically engineer the fire lizards to be huge and dragon-shaped and breathing fire so that they can defeat these threats. And then, like, they lose contact with Earth, and or they don't go back, I don't remember. And They lose contact. Yeah. And so they, their technology is, like, they have to start pretty much over from scratch. And then I think there was some book at the end, which I didn't read. Did you read it? I've read, yes, uh, shamefully, I've read many, many or all of them, but they do end up reclaiming that level of technology eventually. But I was going to say, like, the answer, Freya, to your question about what they do in between the thread falls, because there are, like, periods of 200 years between it, and they have to maintain knowledge through song, because it's a feudal level of of technology in this society. Basically, the, the weirs, which is where the dragons and the dragon riders live, are sustained by tithes from the landowners around them. And when there's no thread, there's a whole bunch of plot lines, in fact, in the lesser book, around how they're not tithing the way that they should, because the farmers are starting to believe that there is no more thread. So why send your sheep to feed the dragons when there's nothing that the dragons are doing? Right. There's also this whole thing about how they ramp up like the dragon production um, when a threadfall is coming nearer. And it's very prestigious to be chosen by the dragons. And so people from roundabout might send their children to the weir to try to impress a dragon and they get sent home again if they fail but there's also this cool um social tension between the hidebound uh members of the farming feudal lordships and feudal vassal states and serfs and stuff thinking that the weirs are full of sexually promiscuous people um that are going to corrupt the youth well i mean if what you know about dragons is is comes down to you know they might burn this stuff that might or might not fall from the sky and they make their bonded people have sex i suppose you know which stories would get around and become more interesting in the telling yeah but i think that our next tentpole has some rather more interesting things to say about the whole concept of soul bonded animal companion driven sexual needs and the military and the so, military our third tentpole is a fanfic called You Drive Through the Dust by Dira Sudis. So this is one story in a series of stories. I think altogether the series is about 175,000. Um, and it is a fusion between Generation Kill uh, and a fantasy series. But the whole point of it is that 
the Marines, the US Marines, and it, we and we kind of assume some other militaries in the world as well, mm -hmm. like I mentioned, some of the, the British Army at some yes. point, have this group of people who are soul bonded essentially with, I would say, sentient wolves. And it's a very similar thing where the, the idea is that they use these bonds between the men and the wolves uh, as a military force. And that if you are bonded to a female wolf, then you are expected to go through essentially heat and have sex with whoever is bonded to the male wolf that is having sex with your sister, they call them sisters or brothers, basically as part of your service to the military in order to then make more magic soul bonding wolves. And this story is essentially a retelling of the events of the Generation Kill miniseries, uh, but with all of that wolf shit thrown in on top. And it is extremely delightful, full of sex, <laughs> but does manage to do some interesting things, I think, with that idea of basically semi or non-consensual sex because this is you're just doing it because your wolf is doing it, because it is also telling a love story between two people who have had sex because of their wolves having sex, but what they are not allowed to do, even as they fall in love, is have non-wolf-related sex. And so somehow the author manages to make the scenes of like having sex in heat seem really uncomfortable and tiring and exhausting. And you're like, this is the least sexy thing I have ever read. And that's clearly what the characters are feeling. And all the time you're wanting them to have just like normal human makeouts. That's where <laughs> the tension is. Anyway, it's a very delightful story. I just briefly wanted to mention, Dara Sudis is only the second uh, fan fiction author which has been featured more than once on this podcast. Uh, we have yes. featured Astolat multiple times, and now we have featured Dara Sudis twice. Remind me, what was the other one? The previous one? It was the... Um, the Bokaisian. Yeah. Yes, For, yes, uh, you're totally right. Disaster Bisexuals. Yes. And I think that the really cool thing that this fic does is exactly what Freya was talking about. It's the systematization of this non-consensual experience. How would you do this if this was part of what the military required? And I totally believe that they would find a way to systematize an advantage like that. Mm -hmm. Which And the world building in it is just so detailed and so offhand. Like there's all these really casual things like what kind of prejudice would you face as a you know, as a brother to a female wolf and how does it actually work and what's the slang that builds up around mm -hmm. it and even the things about like how they name the pups and things. Oh, it's just really layered, but it seems to mesh so well with this particular like strange over-masculinized military culture that Generation Kill examines in a kind of unsympathetic way as a TV show. Yes. I especially there was there's a section later on in the fic where the wolves develop a superstition around the name of one of the other wolves and they're not really they're sentient but they're not really as smart as people and so they get something in their stuck in their instincts and you cannot reason them out and so the ways that the officer in command because that's the other thing about this story it's told from the point of view of a military commander how does he solve that problem um, and how does he maintain his authority while not allowing the wolves to kill this other wolf who they now believe to be um, anathema? And the whole big, the whole tension throughout the story is this tension between military hierarchy and this sense that the wolves might at any, they have been trained and bred through the years and years so that they fit into the human idea of a military, but they also have this deep old instinct to go back to what they call the old ways, which would be you know, a more traditional kind of pack that is led by, in a similar way to the dragons and the weir, mm -hmm. uh, one queen bitch, essentially, and her chosen mate. And but they can't do this because that's not how military structure works. And so they are constantly fighting their instincts and having to be told, no, that is against the rules. This is how we have to do things. And I would say that these are a good example of a balance between um, animal companions who have sentient and our characters and have character development but are still completely devoted and dedicated one-to-one -one with a single human yes because mm. this somehow manages to do both which most things either do one or the other mm. i think most of the good stuff in this story is the fact that it's not just that one-to-one -one. obviously you have your, your yes. one wolf and thing but there's the idea of pack 
Yes. And the idea that through being linked to one animal, you are actually linked to multiple ones and to multiple men. And it's this idea of that camaraderie and brotherhood of the military that is linked to the idea of a pack. But and you get really interesting dynamics coming into play there. I think you particularly do with um, the whole concept of the wolves have a ranking and the humans have a rank ranking, but who is your fealty actually dedicated to? Yeah, and I loved this aspect of, of the fic. Obviously, like, no surprise. <laughs> no one is surprised. I think Macy actually, Macy and Freya, you were actually kind of selling me on this fit because I was dragging my heels a little bit about reading it because I've just been drowning in, in deadlines. And you were like, you'll, but you'll love it. You have to read this fic, though. I know it's long. You have to read this. It has fealty, Alex. And I was like, fine. <laughs> I will deign to read this fic, which I have to read anyway for homework. But they do the fealty really, really well because this commander spends so much of his time thinking about the well-being of his pack and how he can best take care of the men and wolves who are under his command. And about halfway through the fic, I realized that this the fealty book that I am working on sort of in the distance, not actively right now, that I'm going to have to rewrite and overhaul the whole thing because it made me realize things about fealty and about quote-unquote pack that... Mm -hmm. I hadn't really realized before, like, you can't be a lord or a liege in a vacuum. You have to have the people around you who owe you their loyalty and who choose to give you their their fealty and their obedience, even when it's hard and mm -hmm. nasty and gross and uncomfortable. And that's so much more meaningful than just, like, one person who follows you. May see? Mm-hmm. Macy, I, I want a Nirvana in Fire Wolf. Oh my god. Now. Oh no! Imagine? Oh no! Oh Freya! Dirasunas oh, no. follows us on Tumblr. <laughs> Maybe if we say really nice, she'll write that but, for us. But Freya, <laughs> we imagine... Are we going to inflict Nirvana in Fire on, on someone that we, you know, admire and respect? Freya, okay, question. And I, we will promise, cut us off if we spend more than five minutes on this, but question. Okay. One of two options, <laughs> right? The wolf that uh, Mei Shang Su has beforehand suffers with him and has a similar scent change due to the disease and thus is not found by anybody. Or the wolf dies and he has a new wolf. <gasps> yeah. Ah! Yeah, and that's how like he's that so one. broken because he's lost. Yes. Yes. yes he's lost his wolf. And oh my gosh, because then you can have that wolf kind of in the back of his head like he's thinking about what she would have said because clearly he has a girl wolf yeah but the first time and meanwhile, and meanwhile jing yan's wolf is like this person smells familiar and jing yan's like shh that's silly look at their wolf completely different the wolf, wolf is the wrong gender completely different yeah. wolf oh my yeah. gosh <sighs> that'd be amazing uh, we'll just sit here and, and think about that for a little while so basically what we're saying is add these wolves to any fealty trope uh, fandom and you have like yes. instant melted Freya. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this is, which is weird because again, I'm not usually an animal companion. Yeah, Freya! I'm so but... sorry you've been so quiet this episode and have so little to contribute. Oh, wait. You've been delightful as always. <laughs> we, we totally forced you to do this. You did actually like start out going like, oh, I did actually I'm not really insist interested on doing it. And I was like, oh. Companions. <laughs> oh, I don't maybe you'll sit this one out and books. let you get a guest host for this episode. You can find someone else, right? Oh, but and I do like I that like, fit. No, I actually have lots of things to uh -huh. say about dragons. Oh, I do like that fit. And I do like that movie. Oh, the book, the, the McCaffrey's really short, and I do like McCaffrey. Look, I'm terrible. You guys are doing a, an episode without me, and one of the texts, am I allowed to spoil what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Might as well. And one of the texts is Annihilation yeah. by Jeff Vandermeer. And I was like, oh, it's horror. It's fine. I don't like horror at all. And now you're doing Hannibal, which is one of my favorite TV shows, Annihilation, <laughs> which I read last night. <laughs> In one sitting. Oh, that one's a good one. So, yes. I'm just terrible. Yes. That's okay, Freya. We love you. It's anyway. fine. We love it's you fine. because. Enough, it's enough fine. of talking about next episode. What else no. do we have to say about today's episode? How do we feel about, you know, there's a lot of animal companions in Disney movies, I feel. I don't know that I would count them as animal companions. 
They're not because they're not filling the hole. They're there to sell merchandise. Yeah. Yep. And so that somebody has an excuse, and so a protagonist has an excuse to talk to themselves without sounding crazy. But the whole idea is that you can't give a Disney protagonist, especially old school Disney, a best friend because then yep. they would have this tragic orphan status. Like if Aladdin had a best friend, there might be someone who's just like, what are you doing, you idiot? Well, Aladdin he has, has a, a monkey. Yes, which is useless. Yeah, yeah he has it. A monkey, which cannot actually like stop him from doing stupid things and can't actually talk back, but has a personality. Mulan has her but, little dragon. That's true. That's true. He, I think it's, we're getting more into sort of the new school Disney where they actually, the character, the animal companions have more of a sort of friendship role. But the whole idea with these protagonists is that they're usually quite isolated in their lives. Mm. And so having an animal companion is a way of having somebody else there, kind of but it's not distracting from the fact that you're going to have a romance and that's going to be the second half that you're going to find, I, usually. I feel like the closest thing to like a classical um, kids' horse book of the 90s that I've been reading, I just started reading um, one of your agent siblings' books, Alex, uh, Sarah Gailey's Hippo book. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, that's definitely an animal companion book. Isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And like I'm yeah. like halfway through. It's a novella. It's very readable. Uh, the first one is called River of Teeth. And there's like so far, like two separate members of this group have told me tragic stories about how they raised their hippo from birth. Yeah. I love, I of this like five person heist gang, that's like 40%. They're so good and slimy. I love them. They're the worst cats. <laughs> the worst cats. They're they very bad. They're, 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 they really hit that midpoint between cat and horse where they've got these, like, little quirky personality traits, but they're also, you know, your Steve, because it is a take on a Western. Yeah. Alex, we have to send Freya that Tumblr now. We have to send Freya what? That Tumblr. Which, uh, the worst cats. I know I've seen it before, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. But yes, we shall. Yes, we will. Dear listeners, we will link it for you as well, for your joy, if you have not yet seen it. It is the best Tumblr that tumbles. But yeah, I think if I had to pick a place... Oh no, you know why we can't stop yet? Why? Because no one's mentioned Valdemar. I haven't read any Valdemar. Me neither. Okay. Is this a terrible thing that you're going to tell us we shouldn't read? No, I mean, it's it's a very 90s. It's the Mercedes Lackey uh, horse books. Psychic, soul-bonded horses. Literal horses? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds okay. fake, but okay. It has some gay in it. Okay. Anyway, yes, I'm mentioning that that exists because it is literally a fantasy horse book, and I think that that sounds necessary. And they did seem to be one of the least worst worlds because they got to go to, to court and have like court intrigue drama with the queen and maybe drink wine a bunch and have fancy clothes, which I was down for. Yeah. So I would go with that verse. Like if I had to be in one of these universes and try to get soul bonded, I would say that one. How about you two? I mean, I really like I Temeraire. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say Timur as well. You, you know, apart from the whole at war. That's yeah. why I was picking I really... Valdemar. <laughs> I love the dragons a lot. In the Tim thing Rare. that I love most about the dragons in Temeraire is that they have wildly different lifespans than the humans yes. do. So you kind of inherit dragons sometimes. and That was super cool. That It's this wonderful thing where maybe you have your grandmother's dragon and you knew your grandmother and she was super important to you. And she was also super important to this dragon. And you can kind of like have that connection together where it's more about choices than about Mm. like you have to. And you can care about things and be individuals together. And I wonder if maybe that's like a shifting in attitudes that's coming towards some of the hope punk stuff is choice and consent as more of a focus in fantasy books, which I for one would be super excited to see. Yeah, same. So there we go. Consent from your animal companions. Somehow we did not bring this back to fucking dragons. Well done. Oh, until you mentioned it, Freya. And now that, you mentioned it, now that you mentioned it, I'm gonna end. I'm gonna end the the episode about fucking dragons, but not a dragon companion. There was oh, this uh, the first ship that I ever that I can remember ever having was for this book called Dragon's Bait by Vivian Vandeveld, which is the greatest author name ever. And it was about this shape-shifting dragon, and sometimes he was a dragon, and sometimes he was a very hot man. And there was this protagonist who was a spunky young heroine, and the whole book, I was like eight years old, and the whole book I was like, and now they kiss, and now they kiss, and now they kiss, and, and, and now, now they kiss. And then the book ended without them kissing, and I was like, 
fuck is this? <laughs> I have read a non-zero number of Timur episodes yes. where Timur gets turned into a handsome young man because everyone's just yep. like, the bond is so strong, but you can't fuck a dragon, so let's fix that. I have also uh, read a non-zero number of those fics. Oh, the pearls. Anyway, <laughs> on which note, shall we? Yes, we shall. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night, Good night my listeners. Good night. Good night. this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. As has been clearly established, as a small, I dearly, dearly wished to have a dragon or a fire lizard. Didn't really matter. Back in the day, though, McCaffrey was still chasing down fanfic authors with scary, legal-sounding letters, and fanfiction.net had banned pern works. I deeply believe that the Naruto-inspired in-depth self-insert trend would have kicked off ten years earlier were not for that. But it was all right. We had live journal pern RPGs instead. I remember writing a thousand-word character description and an 800-word writing sample in an attempt to audition for the honour of playing a green rider. But enough reminiscing. We have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, two weeks hence on August 29th, we'll be discussing murder and body horror and sexy, sexy viscera. If you want to prepare in advance, one of the tentpoles for that episode is the Hannibal fic, where all ladders start by Emmanuel. So, if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and on Tumblr, or join in the conversation in our fan Discord chat with a link in the show notes. If you enjoy the podcast, please do remember to review us on iTunes. And by the way, I think you're cool enough to impress a fire lizard. I think you'd impress five. <laughs>